Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 16, Shadow. Let's get this show on the road. So, Drew, what did you think of this episode? This was... I I didn't expect it to be as big as it was. Okay. Like, I think that's always the fun thing as I go into these episodes. Like, occasionally you'll give me a hint of, like, oh, this is a special one. And I'm like, who knows what it could be. But, like, I did not expect John. I did not expect Meg to be back. I did not expect to have a Meg reveal already. I thought maybe we get, yeah. like, a few more episodes of her being hidden still. But overall, I enjoyed this episode. I liked it. I think it did a lot of great things, both from a overarching story and an episode of the week type thing. I think they were both very good. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, usually it's true. I prep you or I prime you. I'm like, ooh, this is a big one. But for this one, I really didn't. <laughs> Shall I recap the episode for our listeners? I will give you a two-minute recap. Count me in when you're ready. Three, two, one, go. We have a girl walking home uh, through sketchy alleys. Something is following her we don't see. We only see its shadow on the wall. Episode title already there. Um, eventually she gets home. She hides away. She thinks she's safe. And whatever this shadow thing is, it gives her the most... Terrible on-screen death I think we've had all series so far. Uh, We then cut to the boys coming to investigate this mysterious death of a girl in her apartment. Uh, They find a weird symbol on the floor. They start doing their research. And while they're figuring things out, Meg shows up. Oh, yay. Oh, we all love Meg. There's nothing wrong with Meg. She ain't evil at all. Uh, Sam follows her, figures out she's clearly damn evil. They then plan to... Uh, sneak up on her and catch whatever she's doing, but surprise, it was a trap and she was actually after them. And then double surprise, she's actually after John for someone else, it turns out. <gasps> who, is she, who is she doing this for? Why do they want John? Is she related to the demon that killed her mother? So many unanswered questions. Unfortunately, we'll never know because Meg is thrown from window and dies. Or so we think. The boys go back home. John, oh, back on back to their apartment or condo, wherever they're staying. I can't think of the word. Hotel room. Uh, then John is there and they have a nice little, you know, reuniting moment before they are slowly shredded to pieces by shadow demons again uh, because clearly Meg didn't die which is a whole other story to get into and then they get away and then John's like they're like no we have to split up because if we stay with John they'll get him we have to go our separate ways and they go their separate ways and it's sad but we learn a lot 28 seconds left okay in my in my um slightly bizarre recap did I miss any major points that uh we need to touch on no, I really don't think so. You really talked about everything. If we can just, if I, if I can just like cherry pick a couple of things Please? that are going to be important in terms of the long game, this is the, well, important, interesting because it's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see your first, I see your first point listed and I'm like, is that really important? <laughs> no, it's not important, but it's interesting. The second one is important. So the first one, yeah. it's the first time that the show references Grey's Anatomy. Now you say first, is this going to become a recurring thing? Well, (laughs) for me to bring it up. (laughs) The reference is that the girl who gets killed at the very beginning, her name is Meredith. The man who calls her, his name is Derek. Okay, I didn't actually catch that when I, uh, the names, I guess. The second point here is that the boys are actually in Chicago in this episode. And Chicago actually takes on a very important meaning a couple of seasons in. Hmm. Something to remember that the first time that they see John, first time that they are very, very close to the, the, the thing that may have killed their mom, it's in Chicago. And I think that that's interesting looking back. I, I'm intrigued. I always like when locations become important like that. Like I know in this episode we do get a bit of like, and we do yet. It's a red herring later on. The whole like the victims were both from Lawrence. Mm, yes. That's it's, it's an interesting touch. So the idea that they played on that aspect in this, mm-hmm. even as a red herring now to find out that Chicago might become more important down the road is an interesting kind of like Ouroboros there, the snake eating its own tail. Agreed. Shall we move into story time? Story time it up. So Drew, this week, are we ready to fight about the theme? <laughs> uh, no, this week, I think we're pretty on par with the theme. 
This one, when I was rewatching it, I, I was having trouble sort of coming up with something until the very end. So the boys are battling shadow demons and then the way to get rid of those demons is actually to bring light into mm -hmm. a room, right? So to bring things to light. And I started thinking about... I started thinking about the ways in which things come to light in this episode. I was wondering if maybe there was something that had come to light for you, perhaps. And I think, so I think this is a really nice example of them being very literal and heavy handed in the, like, like you said, things coming to light kind of out of the darkness, kind of revealing what's mm -hmm. behind the shadows. Yeah. It's very heavy handed, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like they're slapping you in the face with it. Like they have with other themes where they're really on the nose here. It's a little more subtle, despite how literal they take it in that last scene. But it does, it, it was at that moment too. And then it really becomes clear that, I mean, whether it be the very literal John stepping out of the shadows into light, like there is very like, it's very dramatically lit that like you can't see it's him right away and he has to turn around and then step forward. They really drive yes. the point home. Yeah. But even just how Sam follows Meg, uh, you know, hiding in the shadows to like sneak up on her, basically being hidden uh, this whole time. We then have even just the metaphorical hiding of things and the fact that this whole thing was a setup by Meg. She knew Sam was following. She knew he was there. You know, she hid that she knew to be able to spring a trap. It's it's nice to see the layers of both the like we get literally the most obvious here is a shadow creature come to light. You paused it or stopped it to the uh, people stepping into the light out of shadows and then the actual what it all means, hiding things to then reveal something. Yeah, honestly, I thought that, like you said, although some things were very literal, so, and and when we say literal, I think it's important to, to note that because television is a visual medium, sometimes, like, some people are much better at reading visual mm -hmm. representations, and others are very good at finding more abstract themes. And I think that in this episode, they're doing such a good job at representing it visually that it makes it look for us like, oh, wow, like this was really, this is exactly what they were trying to convey. So I think when everybody can agree on a theme and, and, and say, oh, yeah, I can find these examples, then I think that it means that it's a well-executed episode. So it's a very good storytelling trick to go a little, the tiniest bit of technical. It's, it's pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. You... You have a pattern in this episode of things being revealed mm -hmm. so that when you give us one or two really obvious ones, it makes it easier for our brains to reach out and find the less obvious ones and then draw that conclusion. Well, speaking about less obvious ones, I was wondering, because you've mentioned, you know, John coming into the spotlight very visually, uh, coming out of the shadows, also metaphorically stop. He doesn't hide anymore. He's actually with his sons. Meg's plan coming to light, etc. What does come to light about Dean and Sam in this episode? I think we kind of get a, a very interesting dichotomy in Sam in this episode. Okay. We get both his ultimately what his goals are he wants to find this thing and this whole adventure to come to an end which dean is very much not on board with mm -hmm. but the other thing we get from sam this episode is we start to sort of see a few more cracks in the armor of this chosen complex he tends to have discussing a lot of the you know like where things started where they are now how they are kind of the center of this thing yeah I believe it comes to light when um, Dean first points out that the two victims were both from Lawrence and Sam really kind of takes it as a like, this is all about us. So we kind of have this two levels of Sam being very like, I am I slash we are the center of the story. We are very focal, but I want the story to end. And I think that you've got a really interesting point here, because for me, really, like what I learned about the boys in this episode is their end goal. At this mm -hmm. point in the story, what I learned, which technically you're not too sure exactly until until then, is Sam's goals, which is to go back to school, to finish this thing with their family, get his revenge, and then move on, get out of the life and continue on. But then you also have Dean's goals and Dean's wants and needs that are completely diametrically opposed to that. You've really got... You have Sam, who is on a spiritual detour right now, 
versus Dean who has changed directions completely and has chosen this path. Like, yes, this path was sort of forced upon him by his father and the world around him, but he is choosing to continue it regardless of where thing, where this part of the story ends, where Sam truly views this as a, you are giving me a task, I can complete the task and then go back on track. You know, it's interesting that you say he chooses this path because I'm not sure he actively chooses it. I think that he continues on it because he doesn't know what else to do. And I will present this as a little nugget of evidence. So there's a point where, you know, when the boys are having a conversation, which I want to go back to at some point, but like, let's just dive into like a little micro piece of that conversation where Sam explains what his goals are. And then you can see that Dean just like Mm -hmm. doesn't vibe with them. And Sam asks him pretty point blank, like, what do you want for yourself? And Dean doesn't actually answer that question because I'm not sure that he knows. He replies, I don't want you to leave the second this is over. So he doesn't answer with what he wants. He answers with something he doesn't want. He could say, I would like us to continue on this journey. But he say, I don't want you to leave. To me, that speaks a little bit more about Dean just wanting to be surrounded with the people he loves, with his family, because that's what he wants. And he can only imagine his family at this point in the story as hunters. He basically wants a happily ever after. He just doesn't know how to achieve it without continuing on the path he's currently on and keeping Sam and dad along with him. So as we've discussed with Carol Ferry in Route 666, Dean doesn't really have lasting relationships outside of a handful of people. Like, all we know about is Sam, his dad. Uh, We heard about Caleb in this episode, Mm -hmm. who actually does come back. And maybe Cassie, but that's about it. You know, so he, he just wants to be loved. Okay, can we like take a step back and talk about that conversation and how that starts actually? Like, would you be down for that? Yes, no, please, of course. If I may set the scene, this is right before they go in to see Meg in the commercial loft. So they're like (laughs) very, in very manly way, like loading the guns and asking each other if they're nervous like and and this is a pretty huge moment right because they're they're about to maybe go find the thing that killed their mom and so it's it's very very emotional and yet you wouldn't believe it by looking at them and it's interesting because like they're like looking at each other kind of like oh is the other one going to say something because i don't want to be the one to bring this up <laughs> they're playing chicken they're playing chicken yes neither one wants to be the one to admit they are nervous They are both clearly nervous. They are both clearly unsure what they're doing. They both want the other one's reassurance. Ugh, men. I was going to say, so I'm a woman. I was raised as a woman and therefore like I've been told that I process emotions better. And so there you go. But you were raised as a man. You are a cis man. (laughs) Can you explain to me? Like, what happens in that scene? This is... So, yeah, like you said, Ray, I am I am male by birth. I am male presenting. I use male pronouns. I am a guy. And as a little boy growing up, you were... Yes, there's, like, that level of, like, oh, you should be able to speak. But, like, you all know the way you're taught from your father and your other men in society. You swallow your emotions. You bottle things up. And it's the worst. I mean, the learning to get past that has been a life-changing endeavor for me. So to now look back at these moments and see that in society, let alone represented in these characters, it is just so, it's infuriating, but it's also so expected of them. Mm-hmm. You know, these are boys who were raised in that very classic boys will be boys, which is incredibly wrong mentality of this is the way you're supposed to act. This is the way men are supposed to be. You 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 don't show your emotions. You hide those. You are brave. You put on a strong face. You face what you have to face because you're a man. And despite how nervous they are, both from the body language of literally loading weaponry, arming yourselves against things you are not ready to face, and 
just in their dialogue, in their conversation. Like you can almost hear him say yes and have to say no at the last second. I feel like there was a moment with Dean where I think it was in Nightmares. He has that moment in the car also with Sam. And Sam says, doesn't it freak you out? And he goes, no. Mm. Of course it freaks you out. But you're putting on the brave face to protect your little brother. And that's exactly what they're doing here. So if Dean has to put on the strong face to protect Sam, Sam has to put on the strong face to say that he's ready or else Dean won't take him with him. What's interesting, though, and something that I didn't necessarily expect to happen is that this does lead to a conversation, right, that we were talking about, about their goals once this ends. And we've talked about this, right? Sam's goal is to get revenge and get out. And Dean, Dean's goal is to, to be surrounded by his family and his community and to feel to feel like he's a part of something. And I think that this really sets the stage for tension between Sam and Dean about how they see their future and really what their end goal is. And I mean, there's also the part of it too, where like, this is clearly something that's been coming for a while. Like as much as it's been an unspoken truth, I think there's always sort of been that level of we suspected Sam was only here to find his father and avenge his mother. And I don't think anyone suspected Dean to be like, oh, we did it. We're done. Cool. I'm going to go open up a surf shop in Hawaii. It's It's been an unspoken truth, but it really has been the writing on the wall this entire time. There you go. I th- Well, it comes to light now. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, now it's out in the open. Now they're aware of each other's goals. There is literally a ticking time bomb on their relationship. This isn't the first time in this episode that Dean actually opens up to Sam. Or that Dean tries to open up conversation with Sam. Yes, we have. If I'm going the same way you're going, we have that scene outside of the bar initially. Yes, we do. And it's, I just find it so interesting because for so long, Dean has been like suppressing so much of that conversation. And then now it's just... It's coming to light in this episode, right? So he's asking Sam, like, is it true? Like, did you, do you really feel like I'm treating you like luggage? Is that what it is? And Sam's the one who shuts it down. And he goes, no, 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 wait a second. Like, let's focus. We have a case here. So there's two sides of this. One is, yes, Sam shutting it down because he doesn't want to talk about it. Because from an outside perspective, that's usually a sign that there is more to discuss there. And he doesn't want to get into it because he knows it'll lead to a fight. But also there's something that Dean does here, which is where he gets very defensive about it because he knows that it's not necessarily all in his head. He knows there's a part of this where it's, you know, Sam is only here because I basically forced him to come with me. And it's interesting, too, because there's also a way to read this as Sam shuts it down because to him it's in the past. And you'll see that Sam doesn't really hold grudges against the people he loves like he gets really heated but then he's like meh whatever you know really they had like you go back to scarecrow they had their fight they split up sam grew learned and realized what he had to do and came back there was never really a moment of dean to grow in that moment dean sort of just went like oh cool i win yeah, although, no, remember, remember though, that Dean also tells Sam, like, you know, I hope that you find what you're looking for. I hope, you know, I'm really proud of you. Like, Dean has a really beautiful moment of growth there. No, you're right. There is definitely growth, but there's never a follow-up conversation between the two of them to understand what just happened. That's what I'm looking for. And that is a bingo for Drew Shulman. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yes, exactly. There's no follow-up. They never actually address this. They just, they do their growing. Interestingly enough, Dean is the one to address his growing with Sam, and Sam doesn't address his growing with Dean. I think this is just a really interesting way of of bringing this fight Mm -hmm. to light again. Mm Mm-hmm. See, look at that. Oh my goodness. Look at all the layers. Look at all of the layers of this onion. We do have to address the elephant in the room of this episode, and that is them coming back to their hotel room. (laughs) And John is there. This, as you put it, is our first time seeing John in the series with the boys. Up until now, he's been on his own, in cutaways, in flashbacks, in other moments. He's never really been in the same room as them until now. Mm. And I'm thinking about our listeners who are listening to this, who are watching the show for the first time and like, 
oh man, I'd love to know how, how did you feel in that moment? Because I remember watching it and just being like, finally, oh, <laughs> like that moment of relief and vindication when they finally, and they don't even find him. He finds them. <laughs> Which just seems very John of like what I know of John yes. so far. It's a very John move in my books. Yeah, like I get the vibe that John, not that he's been everywhere with them kind of thing, but I feel like he's always known where they were. Yeah, which opens up a whole other can of worms, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But we, we've discussed problematic John a lot already. Yeah, yeah. Let's and talk we will about continue we because we are oh, not we done. <laughs> but let's talk about what we get in this moment with John. Yeah, what does this exactly. bring to light? Yeah, so... Did you remember this? Because I know that you've watched the show before. Like, did you no, remember this I at all? I had no idea. Okay, cool. So can you walk me through this? So I'll be very honest. This is one of those times where like, and I'm surprised I didn't somehow do it by mistake. I did not look at the remaining time in the episode. I really kind of had like, okay, you've defeated Meg. There's a whole critical time moment to get to there. We'll get to there later. But we have the, we defeat Meg. They are going back home. And there's sort of that level of, okay, what do we do next? And I'm kind of like, well, this is the end of the episode, and then they open the door, they hear somebody open the door and see John, and I'm like, oh, it's gonna end now, and we'll talk to John next episode, and then, like, no, they actually get a moment with John, and I'm just like, this is adorable, I like this, and then very quickly, I was like, oh, something's gonna happen. This was, this was too easy, this was too... That sense of impending doom. <laughs> hmm Oh, no. Uh, but no, I was legitimately surprised. I had no recollection of this coming up at this point in the series. I... I don't even think I had in my mind them seeing John until that moment I can picture in season four finale, I think, in mm. the graveyard. But like I said, I was legitimately surprised. I don't mm-hmm. think I was as surprised with this as I was with the reveal in Night uh, in Nightmares. Yeah. I feel like that was more like unexpected. This, we kind of already had the setup of John is in yes. town. She was like, there was kind of always this like layer of like John is near so seeing mm-hmm. him wasn't as, as a surprise, but what it resulted in was surprising. Well, it's because we have had time also to imagine what that moment mm-hmm. would be like, right? We've had time to pine for it because it is 16 episodes in. We have been wanting them to actually find each other for this long. So yeah, definitely. So it doesn't have the weight that the the reveal in nightmare had because that was completely blindsiding there was yeah. no pre-announcement i guess or foreshadowing to this so it was like even as just an overarching like if you are someone coming into the show the plot of the show is two brothers looking for their father you imagine they'll meet the father at some point exactly. even if it's temporarily there is never any illusion up to the point in nightmares of oh yeah there's this whole deep dark conspiracy involving you and other children who had the same thing happen to them Exactly. That's like a oh moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a. So to me, like those are uh, uh, just like you said, like they're completely different re- reveals. Yeah. And so, w- how did you read the dynamic between the three of them? So let's go one at a time. Let's start okay. with Dean. Yeah. Dean, there's immediately a hug. Yeah. That is instant. With Sam, it is not, but we get there. Mm-hmm. There is the relief of seeing each other. There is the fact that this is... There, there's no... There's surprise to see him, but it's not like a revelation that he's there. It's just... Mm-hmm. It's comforting to see him. And I think for Dean, it really is just... It's a having the family together for a moment. It's a... Yeah. We are a complete unit for the first time, and I feel good. Yeah. And... I know we keep talking. We we're going to keep talking about John letting his guard down because he's with his boys, but I feel like Dean really lets his guard down in this moment. I feel like if it were, and I know why they didn't do it because it's way too cheesy. But had Dean been carrying the bag of weapons, it would have been that like bat- dropping your bags at the airport and hugging somebody moment. I feel like there's more to discuss with Sam. Is there anything else on the yes. Dean moment you want to get to? No, I mean, I just think it ties in with what we were discussing earlier about like Dean's end goal, right? To have his family together. And in that moment, he does. And, you know, you can just imagine that things are good for Dean in that moment. So Sam. Sam. <laughs> okay, so there's right away, there is the, let's just put the cards on the table. The last time we saw each other, we did not separate on the most pleasant terms. Mm-hmm. 
we know there's a level of Sam that wants to confront John about this. I'm not surprised by it. I don't think it's bad writing. I don't think it's wrong. I think it's a very human moment. He puts that aside. Right now, this is my father. We are in a spot right now where we are on good terms as far as we both know. Let's enjoy this moment. Let's not dredge up a fight from the past and have it out right now in the streets. Kind of like a certain fight he didn't want to have in front of a bar. Second, we do ultimately get a hug. It does take a bit more time to get there. Only because I think they both almost, in their own way, want to sort of check the temperature of the water before jumping in. They both want to know what page are we on. And then when they kind of hit the moment of like, we're family, we're good, we can get through things. They can reconcile, they can have the hug. There's that ultimate moment of like, like the way Dean did. It's nice to have you back. We feel complete again. My biggest thing though, is that Sam calls him sir. And how, uh, what, what, why is that a thing? We've had Dean do it. I yep. believe at least on two different occasions mm-hmm. over the phone or there's always sort of been that military vibe between mm-hmm. Dean and John. There is, you were, you were brought up like a soldier to fight demons and we never really got that with Sam. Sam is on board. Sam understands the rules of the game. I don't think at any point would I describe Sam as one of John's soldiers the way I would Dean, but the fact that he puts on that facade in that moment, it just speaks a lot to the relationship they do have. There is something unsaid on the table that John expects this of Sam. And it's just so ingrained in Sam that when your father's like this speaks to you, he is sir. I am not sure that it's ingrained in Sam as much as Sam is choosing it in that moment. So again, this is the first time that we're actually seeing them interact with Mm -hmm. one another. But if you remember the, the the one time that we heard them on the phone call, Sam didn't call him sir, right? Like it was no, exactly. very much like, listen, I am over yeah. all of this. Like you need to get your shit together because I need some answers. But that wasn't the same. Here, the boys almost died. And then they think that they killed something that has to do with their mom. So like there's just... It's very heavy, like they're carrying a heavy burden. And Mm -hmm. then they're getting back to their hotel room and seeing their dad for the first time in months, for Sam for the first time in years. Yeah. Is it really the time to not give John what he wants? Like, I feel like Sam, perhaps by doing that, is fawning a little bit, you know? He's like, oh, yes, yes, sir. Like, you know, he's being agreeable to him because he doesn't want to deal with pissed off John at the moment. Like he just wants them to get along. And you'll notice that it's only in that moment that he calls him sir, because later when they're at their cars, he doesn't call him that anymore. Well, he does it twice when they're in the hotel room during their conversation. There is two very clear moments of it. You're right. Now that you mentioned that when they're outside by the car and things are a little more like ad hoc and hectic, that he kind of drops it. But I think mm, I'm very torn on this matter now because I feel like if it really was something he was doing for the benefit of John, we may have seen it on some of the more calm phone calls, like the one he makes to him about Dean being in the hospital and possibly dying. Yeah, some of the other voicemails are a little more in anger, so maybe he wouldn't have taken the time to make that move but it almost feels reactionary to me like that he's so used to it that it's second nature to call his father that when he sees him like when he's like almost like that when you like when you see your high school bully again even though you've grown up and he's clearly not gonna steal your lunch money there's always that little part deep down where you're like you like twitch a little bit yeah like i'm sorry listeners Revertigo. Oh my God. I can't believe you made that <laughs> reference. I was going to make that joke earlier and I didn't do it, but I'm glad one of us did. But I, so I will, I don't know. I'm trying to like draw from personal experience here because in, in certain ways relate to the boys relationships with their father. And I feel like in that moment, yeah, sure. It might be a, a little bit of revertigo, but I really do think that for Sam in that moment, it's a comfort Okay, so let's skip over that, you know, gruesome scene, scene about them. Um, yeah, a yeah. pretty bloody fight, yes. And yeah. then let's get right to the car. The car. So, 
Yeah, so you can tell already from a few minutes, like, Dean already knows what needs mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? And Sam doesn't. And I'm not quite sure about John, so I'm interested to see how you see it. But Dean already knows that John is going to have to leave them. I think John knew the entire time this was not a permanent reunion. I think that was very... I don't think it's very clear, but I get the vibe from the departure that he was very much aware this was just a I'm checking in because of the scenario. Okay. And I think deep down inside, Dean was hopeful he would stay. And then as soon as this happened, realized this happened, and I think he may even blame himself for it. Mm. In fact, I'm convinced he blames himself for it because the reason he says dad has to leave is because we make him weak. We are his Achilles heel. As long as we're around, he's not safe. Mm -hmm. He, as much as he poises it as it's dad's weakness and it just happens to be us. He full well knows I have to say goodbye to my father who I have would do anything to keep with me right now because I am the weakness. I am the thing that makes him weak. I am his kryptonite. He needs to go. He can't be near me. I will also suggest an mm-hmm. alternative way of viewing this. And they're not mutually exclusive. I think that both can coexist. But I think that Dean knows that John has to go because, yes, it's to protect his dad, but it's also a way, like, that's what he would do if he were, like, because we've always talked about D- Dean being more of a father to Sam than a brother. Mm-hmm. And I think that if Dean were in John's shoes, he would leave Sam because it would be a way of protecting Sam as well. It, it really comes down to a level of Dean having to decide what does he want more, his happiness or the safety of those around him. So again, Scarecrow comes back a lot in our conversation, but remember how Sam like ditched his looking for John to go and save Dean in that episode? Well, I feel like here Dean is returning the favor and is saying like, we need dad to leave so that you can stay safe. Shall we venture into critical time for a bit? All right, so I don't usually start off critical time, but I just wanted to mention that this is an episode that was written by Eric Kripke. And so the reason why we're seeing so much of so many things that are going to be used from this episode in later seasons or later episodes, it's because of that, right? Because his episodes are really guiding forces for the narrative. Exactly. He know, he knows where he wants things to go, so he's able to plant seeds or at least work within a knowledge that might not be public knowledge to the rest of the team per se. And even even more than that, like because Rochelle... Whenever she's with us, she often talks about the archetypes of Simon Dean. And I think that Kripke really, really is the undefeated master of the archetype of Simon Dean. Um, Because in this episode, they are just so in your face. You can really see them, as we've discussed, right? I feel like that might even lead into my next point of critical time, which is a one of my favorites. Those off-put-in little references to things that if you dig into kind of reveal something much bigger. Ooh, you know, I love them. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm excited. (laughs) So there is a moment when Dean kind of pokes fun at Sam for having acted in a school play. Okay. Yes. Of course he names the school play. It's the the play is called our town. Mm -hmm. I, of course the radar clicked. I had to pause the episode and do some reading for 30, 40 minutes. And I found out about our town, the very brief version. It's a three act play. The, Second and third act being much more important and driven. Basically, act two is all about a boy who wants to go to college but chooses not to to follow in his father's footsteps and take over the family farm. Oh, Sam. And then the third act gets incredibly dark and basically involves most of the major characters passing away. But essentially, the real theme that is brought forward at the end of this is the idea of not not so much the afterlife, but eternity, like what you're going to do with yourself. So we really get kind of a painting of Sam in this role of having your own dreams, but because of the way your family and society looks at you, you have to follow a certain path, just as Sam is doing now. He chose to break from the family tradition and go to college and try to have a life, and then was dragged back into it. And ultimately, the end of this play is the idea that you get dragged into something and it becomes your entire life, it becomes your eternity, 
which both is kind of what Sam is afraid will happen, that they'll never really solve this and he'll get stuck being a hunter forever. He'll never get to go back to the regular life mm-hmm. he wants. But also it kind of paints a picture of Dean in the fact that he is accepted to eternally follow in the family steed. It's really interesting because what they want now changes so much over time, which is the goal, right? You don't want mm-hmm. to always want the same thing over 15 years. You're hoping that your goals change or at least evolve in some way, right? It's just so amazing to think about what the boys are going to accept about themselves and what they're actually going to want for themselves later on. And it's just, oh, I'm feeling all kinds of mushy inside. But I, And I just kind of feel like, I feel like this was a really nice plant of a seed in the sense of like almost like this is a worst case scenario for them yeah and this is something that sam has already had to go through and literally is being mocked for it by dean Mm. the idea that like this is what you're gonna get trapped in again yeah uh it it just sort of it it just helps paint a little bit of the characters i don't think it really does too much more than we've already seen it's very on the nose but i think it's a very nice touch uh, of course, we cannot. If we're talking about cute little things hidden, we cannot skip the best one. <laughs> Go and on. That, and that is that is Meg's uh, meeting something Michael Murray. Yes, which of course is a jab at Sam, who played Dean on Gilmore Girls, who was a rival of Chad Michael Murray's character Tristan. So having that kind of like, oh, I don't know, like moment was kind of just a cute little jab at his history. Yeah. But you brought up an interesting point in this one. Okay, so you know what? Let's let's look at it under that angle. So as we've sort of established, we are looking at Dean as a bisexual character at this point. And keeping in mind also that the goal of the line was to jab some fun at Jared Padalecki at that point because mm-hmm. he's he's he knows or at least at the time he was he knew Chad Michael Murray quite well. Uh, as you said, they they were on Gilmore Girls and then they were also on another movie together. Uh, they were in the movie um House of Wax. House of Wax. There you go. In 2006, there's there was a relationship there between the two the two guys. I found the decision to put an insert of Dean in that moment of Jensen Ackles, not Gilmore Girls Dean, Supernatural <laughs> Dean. <laughs> the worst naming convention. To this day, I still mix them up. Again, keeping in mind, if the goal was to, to to poke a little bit of fun at Jared, then the fact that they put an insert of Jensen in there really makes me question like the, the goal of that moment. Because like Meg says, oh, I met something Michael Murray. And then the first insert that you see is Jensen Ackles going like, oh, oh yeah, I like Chad Michael Murray. I know exactly who you're talking about. And I am happy that you are mentioning him. And then you have the, to contrast with Sam, who goes like, who? <laughs> and so I just think that this episode has like that interesting little moment of, you know, Dean hitting on a bunch of women, but also like being totally starstruck by this one really beautiful guy just in conversation. Yes. And given the existing themes of this episode of hiding behind things, having him be so evidently flirty with women or so intrigued in Sam's getting it on with Meg. It's like he's putting on an act. It feels way too over the top. Like he's really, he's trying too hard to be that bro. So when he when he slips up and kind of has that cute little smile of like, oh, Chad Michael Murray. <laughs> we never know if that moment was scripted or not or what why they decided to put it in in editing because it could have been cut. It didn't need to be there, but it was put in there. It's part of the final product. And so it has to be read as, you know, important. There's a reason why they put that insert in. And yeah, I, I, choo- I absolutely choose to read it as... Dean being starstruck by this really beautiful actor that he knows and that his brother doesn't. So may we dive into a little bit of our Creature of the Week? I am very excited to hear about that. Super quick preamble. I mentioned in a previous episode I had taken some classes on religious studies, but weirdly it never really touched on modern religions. Like it kind of didn't really go too much into Judaism, Islam, Uh, Christianity, it kind of went to more like old world religions. And the first one we really got into was Zoroastrianism, which is the focal point of the creature from this episode. I didn't even know that that was a real thing. (laughs) They, They do make it very clear. It's an incredibly old religion. It is actually the oldest religion that is still practiced today. Wow. It, it literally predates every other religion that we know of that is currently in practice. There are other religions and studies that may predate it, but are, 
completely like white don't exist anymore. They're purely stories. Mm-hmm. This has been continuously practiced for thousands of years. That's so cool. Though I had heard about the religion, though I have a pretty comfortable understanding of the very rudimentary basics of this religion. I had never heard the term Deva, so I did have to look it up. They are the most classical description of like, they are a demon, they are evil, they hate people. In some stories, they tend to represent that religion's version of the seven deadly sins. Okay. The biggest details of them is they do tend to really focus on being unseen. They are so old that they predate written word. Mm. There's no, it's not like there's no description of them. But there's no written detail about them. They are very shrouded in mystery. So the idea that they are a creature we only see as a shadow and there's no physical form to, I think is a really nice interpretation of that. Wow. Okay, cool. And despite the fact that they are considered to be somewhat related to the dark version of a god in that religion, they are unkillable. They can't be stopped. But they are weak to fire. To fire because it brings light? It doesn't say specifically that, but it is sort of implied in some of the tellings. Oh, okay. Which is where it actually gets really interesting. I didn't go too far oh, into boy. these ones, but the last thing I'll get into is devas do come up in other religions. Okay. But in every other religion I could find them in, they were holy spirits. They were good things. Oh, I got shivers. <laughs> uh, this goes, some of the big ones is in Islam, in Hinduism, and in a few other smaller religions that I off my head can't remember the names of right now. But Buddhism and Islam uh, were the two big ones that came up. They are not evil. Really? They tend to pertain to the same thing. So if you think of them, this is a creature that embodies this negative thing. The version of a deva in these other religions are a protector against that negative thing. Like they almost got twisted to be less of a, this thing is bad. It's a how to act good and not be tempted by this thing. Interesting. And seeing as you're saying also that Zoroastrianism is something that predates, you know, the Abrahamic religions, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how much of it has to do with trying to assimilate Christianity adopted a lot of pagan uh, holidays and rituals and you know, Christianized them. And that's, I think that's kind of the, the implication is that these are stories from a religion that turned into folklore within mm. other cultures and then got adopted into their religious texts and their stories. There is the fact that sometimes there's changes, some as small as what they represent or how they're presented to completely shifting the narrative to use them in a different version of a story. Mm. But it does really come out to be very interesting. Uh, and also, to even go back really blunt, Zoroastrianism is very much a two-sided religion. There is very much a god-like creator who represents light and an evil force that wants to taint humanity and tempt them into darkness. And they very literally are light and dark. I mean, you know, like that, I don't think that that's, that doesn't really surprise me because that's also the case with Christianity in some ways. True. I right? feel like a lot of religions do tend to follow that as well. I, I, I mean it when I say literal. Okay. Okay. Well, oh, th- so no, we yeah, I just, <laughs> you saw the light bulb moment. This is very <laughs> interesting, especially considering that later in Supernatural, we are going to have like the contrast between God and the darkness. I believe we have some listener feedback. We do. So this week, rather than a voicemail, it is again a lovely tweet from a listener. This listener is Panda1z, and she responds to us and says, One tiny detail that you have wrong is the color of Mary's nightdress. It's actually a very pale pink and not white. So number one, thank you. Number two, can you remind me exactly which episode this is referring to? Yes, this is from the pilot, uh, when Mary is in her nightdress, which I mistakenly have always referred to as white. And thirdly, I am colorblind, so I'm excused for not noticing it. (laughs) Yeah, he has an excuse, but I really don't. I I assumed it was white from first glance. Again, I know I have difficulty with color sometimes, so it happens. And I think we even read into it being a white dress and some of the connotations that might carry which now I think need to be rethought. But I, I legitimately did not realize it was a light pink dress. And I really like, again, this just goes to show that sometimes analysis from an event can be 
wrong. I mean, we I will rightfully accept that we were mistaken in an assumption of this scene. I like how you're like, oh, yeah, we were wrong. And I'm like, but were we, though? <laughs> because, I mean, at the end of the day, we're not the only ones who have made that mistake, right? I never really heard anybody say this was really brand new information for me. And when I went to look it up, it, it was absolutely verifiable and it was true. But there was also commentary about how this was a common mistake. Again, we talk a lot about intent versus impact here in this in this podcast and so they gave Mary a pale pink nightgown but at the end of the day everybody or almost everybody saw it as white so the impact was one thing versus the intent yeah of course like if you're seeing it as white especially keeping in mind that there's you know the filter on and she's in darkness like it's hard to actually see the exact color of the dress and so to see this very pale, almost white nightgown, like, of course, you're going to read white onto it. To me, what's really interesting about this is actually the analysis that happens when you see it as white. So much of the commentary or some of the commentary about Mary is her being in her quote unquote white nightgown. Well, thank you so much, Kimbo, for this uh, wonderful observation because it actually led us down an interesting rabbit hole also at the end of the day is the dress important i don't know but it's interesting because it's one of the only things that we know about mary and so many people have been wrong have about it, it wrong seems. and that is so representative because when we do learn more about mary we find out that everything we knew about her was wrong ah ah <laughs> this show makes me scream <laughs> me too Trust good me. and bad but it's great oh well again thank you so much kimbo for this uh for this observation crossroads 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay so as we dive into crossroads i am going to hijack the train ever so slightly the episode put the reveals and the story ahead of the continuity and the world yeah. It's almost like they had written down, here are the points we have to hit. We have to have them think Meg is up to something. Surprise twist, she's on to them. Surprise twist, John is there. Surprise twist, John shows up. Surprise twist, Meg's not dead. It, th there were beats they wanted to hit. And I feel like they bit off more than they could chew. So what I want would have been maybe make this a two-parter. Find a way to either take away some of the reveals and give us a more well-built narrative to the episode. And then very plainly, what I would give up is unfortunately some of those reveals, some of those moments, some of that storyline, whether that be less time with John, whether that be dropping that entire bar Maggie introduction scene, although it could be a bit weird without having much there. I feel like, they bit off more than they could chew. I understand your crossroads deal and I I see it. I, I think it would be a necessary one. If I may go on with mine, I wish that we did not have that very awkward scene of Sam spying on Meg as she's changing. It's not like this is something that you would expect of Sam. I mean, on the contrary... It's something that you really would not expect of him that I've noticed. Like he hasn't really exhibited any signs of like voyeur voyeurism. And you know that it's not for that reason that he's going to like to, to check on her at the apartment, but it's really framed as like some guy like snooping, right? And especially knowing that they that the boys have done that before where they've waited outside somebody's home to watch the house and it's never been framed as sexual and yet in this context it really was. I found that that was a disservice to Sam's character. You can tell that he's not in it for that and yet it's framed as that. It didn't make sense. So I, I wish that we could have removed that. I don't want to hijack your crossroads deal but I feel like this almost plays a little bit into what my complaint was is... We had to have that scene so we could have that weird tension when they're tied up later, which is how they eventually <sighs> escape. Oh my god, we didn't talk about that. <sighs> okay. <sighs> Drew, like, I'm, I'm happy that you're bringing this up because we didn't actually touch on that. 
But that also made me very uncomfortable because again, like Sam is not a character who has displayed like a very open and strong sexual attraction to other characters in the story before. And we'll be talking about that more because again, I have my own ideas about why that might be for Sam. It just made me so uncomfortable. Like he is literally, again, reverse the genders and it's just horrifying. He is literally tied up and she is straddling him. Like there's something very sexual and you can tell that like Sam is just not into it in any way, shape or form. And it just feels very much like, like, like sexual assault. (laughs) And oh yeah, uh, no, it is, it is straight up sexual assault. Yeah. I think it, if it does anything, it disservices Meg as much as it disservices Sam in the sense. I feel like in the world of shitty TV tropes, a woman, you know, a, a woman who is designed to be evil using sex in an evil fashion, like, oh, I'm a woman, you're a man, you want to have this. It's just, it's... It's rooted in misogyny. At the end of the day, it's rooted in misogyny. And it just, it just doesn't belong on screen. <laughs> comes back to the idea that women use their feminine wiles in order to get stuff out of men and that is just awful it's an awful trope no but i think again i I think your crossroads deal really is just it's it's poignant it's it's simple it's it it all i mean i don't again i don't want to steal it but it just all goes back to they had a goal in mind they had a finish line and they couldn't get to it in time so they had to throw away the lore the background some better storytelling to try to get these points across some of which I don't think we needed or some that could have been better Mm -hmm. compressed. Yes. Agreed. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Kimbo, Twitter user Panda Onesie, for her tweet. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok using at carryingwayward. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including special episodes. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. <laughs>